sands or yeah I think you get it so today we are beginning a sermon series called Big Butts Easter Edition this is actually the third Big Butts series we've done here at Freedoms the first one was in 2011 then we did another one in 2014 and this one focuses on topics related to Easter specifically about Jesus' death and resurrection. The idea of buts is the idea of objections that people have to Christianity. Now, in your bulletins this morning, you have a postcard about this series. On the back of it is an outline of the topics we will be talking about in this series. Again, it's Easter edition, so they're all about Jesus' death and resurrection. And then following the series, on April 6th, we will have a movie night featuring the movie The Case for Christ. This movie came out last year, and it does a great job of summarizing the topics that we will be talking about in this series. So I encourage you to invite your family, invite your friends to not only the series, but also to the movie night on April 6th. If you would like additional postcards to give to others, they are available at the Welcome Center. Now we have to recognize that there are objections to Christianity all around us. Many people just, just wonder about Jesus. They, they struggle with stuff in the Bible. But we have to know that big butts are not new. There have been people who have objections to Jesus and Christianity down through uh, the last 2,000 years. But today we are looking at what was probably the biggest butt back in the first century, which was this idea that the idea of a crucified Savior is foolish. As we look at history, I think back in that first century, those first decades after the time of Jesus, this very well might have been the biggest but that kept people from following Jesus. But the idea of a crucified Savior is foolish. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, we have a cross here in the sanctuary. But I think when we look at the cross here in the context of 21st century America, by and large, the cross has lost its shock factor. Because again, we decorate churches with the cross. Many of you are probably wearing a cross around your neck and a necklace, or you might have it tattooed somewhere on your body. We decorate our houses with crosses. You might have one or two or ten different crosses up on the walls of your house. By and large, the cross has lost its shock factor in today's culture. But do you know what the cross was originally intended for? You probably do. It was an instrument of execution. It was to put people to death. And so having a cross up here on the stage is kind of like having a guillotine or, or, or a gallows or, or an electric chair up here on the stage. Because these are all instruments of execution. How would you feel if you were to wear an electric chair on a necklace around your neck? Probably a bit strange, wouldn't you? It doesn't feel quite right. But we have to understand that death by crucifixion was far worse than death by hanging or by the electric chair or having your head chopped off. Those all sound pretty bad. But crucifixion was far worse. See, the Romans in the ancient world used crucifixion to humiliate criminals and also as a way to intimidate other people who might be considering that sort of crime. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst. A person who was condemned to be crucified, first of all, was usually beaten brutally. And if they survived that beating, then they would be paraded through the streets so that everyone could see and jeer at them. And then when they arrived at the site of the crucifixion, they would be stripped of all of their clothing. 
our depictions of Jesus on the cross and the other criminals is not fully accurate because they would be nailed naked to the cross. The cross would be posted near a busy road so that many people going by would see what was taking place. It was part of that humiliation and intimidation factor. And then uh, they, they would suffer up there for days. And as they were up there, typically the people going by would be mocking them and taunting them up there on the cross. And again, death by crucifixion was long, usually spanning multiple days. It was agonizing. It was humiliating. It's pretty much a unanimous opinion back in the ancient world that, that crucifixion, among the many different forms of execution, crucifixion was by far the worst. And so with that background in our minds, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to look into 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Lord Jesus, as we look back on the fact that you were crucified, it is humbling. And it's humbling also just to consider what took you there. That, that we all, even though we live 2,000 years later, we all contribute to why you were on that cross. It wasn't because of a crime you committed, but it was because of crimes and sins against the Heavenly Father that we committed. And so I pray that today and in the coming weeks as we dig into Scripture, as we study these objections that people have to Christianity, that we will come to a greater intellectual understanding of your death and resurrection, but also that you will move us in our heart and our will to follow you more faithfully and just simply stand in awe of you because you have done amazing things on our behalf and we say thank you. So we lift up this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, picking up in verse 18. The Apostle Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preached Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And so the topic, the question that this passage raises is the question of a crucified Savior. Remember the big but, but the idea of a crucified Savior is foolish. Now we have to understand that biblically the Christian gospel centers on the cross. I think, for instance, of Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The cross is central to our salvation. Similarly, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is describing the gospel, and he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. 
Now, there is a lot more to the gospel than simply the death of Christ on the cross. But we have to understand that without the cross, there is no gospel because Christ died for our sins. Where did he die? How did he die? On a cross by crucifixion. And so back to our main passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when we see this reference to the message of the cross in verse 18, it's referring to the gospel. Paul writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. And so this passage is listing two different reactions that people have to the cross. On one hand, there are those who say it's absolutely foolish to celebrate a crucified Savior. And verse 18 describes these people as those who are perishing. These are people who have not turned to Christ through repentance and faith. These are people who are still characterized by their sin. They have not received the righteousness of Christ attributed to their spiritual account. These are people who, if they don't turn to Christ before they die, are headed toward hell. These are the people whom we are praying for during the 40 days of prayer. And, and this one group of people then is rejecting Christ, who, who basically through their words, through their actions, through their attitudes are, are showing, you know, a crucified Christ is foolish. But then you have another category of people here that says, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. So for those who have placed their faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins, for them... The cross is so valuable. It's a treasure. It's something that it's important. It displays the power of God that brings salvation in their lives. This is why in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So the gospel, which is centered on the cross, is the power of God that brings salvation into our lives when we receive Christ by faith. So this passage is showing two fundamentally different responses to the crucified Savior. And we see this detailed more down in verses 22 and 23. Paul wrote, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And so we see here, first of all, let's focus on the Greeks. Greeks look for wisdom. Greeks cherished wisdom. Back in ancient Greece, there were so many famous philosophers. Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, Cicero, Pythagoras, Hippocrates, I mean, and so many other famous philosophers. This characterized Greek culture. They valued wisdom so deeply, but they looked at this idea of a crucified Savior and, and rather than seeing it as something that's wise, they saw it just as foolish. Why do you worship a crucified Savior? It does not make sense at all. They were depending on their own human wisdom. Let me show you a piece of graffiti back from the ancient world. This, this graffiti, it was, it was etched into a plaster wall, and it shows a man on the cross with a donkey's head. And that depicts... Jesus. And then there's another man next to uh, that cross with his hand raised toward Jesus up there on the cross. And the inscription down here in Greek says, Alexamenos worships his God. This graffiti is, is mocking Christians, especially a man named Alexamenos, because he's worshiping 
a Savior who he says is crucified, but is still a Savior. He's actually God in the flesh. To, to first century ears, Greek ears who loved wisdom, this made no sense at all. And it was similar for Jews. Although for Jews, they were looking at it from a different angle and actually with stronger emotions than the Greeks because Jews had a vested interest in what was going on here because Jesus was claimed to be Jewish and he was Jewish. Jews longed for a God-appointed king. It says here in verse 22, Jews demand signs. These signs were evidence of God's power at work. They, they were looking for someone who would come along, specifically a Messiah, also known in Greek as a Savior, someone who would deliver Israel from captivity to the Romans, who would exalt Israel, and who would restore true worship of the one true God. They were looking for someone who would come and display God's power through miraculous signs and through overthrowing the Romans. When they looked at Jesus, they did not see what they were longing for. To them, it, it didn't make any sense. It seemed like foolishness to them as well. And, and sometimes I've heard people say, okay, we look at Jesus and we look at all the prophecies back in the Old Testament. How come the Jews couldn't put the pieces together and understand, you know what, Jesus is the promised Messiah. There were so many prophecies back from the Old Testament era that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. How come the Jews couldn't put those pieces together and understand it? You know what I think the primary reason was, besides the fact that Jesus did not fit the, the model they were looking for in the Messiah? I think a primary reason was that the crucifixion of Jesus was too big of a stumbling block for them. For instance, back in De Deuteronomy chapter 21, it was written, so this is in the Jewish law, it says in verses 22 and 23 of Deuteronomy 21, if someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole or on a tree... You must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole or on a tree is under a curse. They are under a curse. Now, in the original context, this was talking about taking a corpse and hanging it up on a pole or a tree as a form of shame and humiliation. And then when Romans invented crucifixion hundreds of years later, the Jews attributed the same mentality from that verse to crucifixion. Anyone who's crucified, who's hung on that, that, basically that tree that made of wood is under God's curse. And so when the Jews looked at the, this idea of Jesus being a claimed Messiah who died on a cross, rather than being God's special appointed one to deliver God's people, instead they saw someone who was under a curse from God. Didn't make sense to them. Now, you may be wondering as well, well, what about other prophecies that predicted a suffering Messiah? What about Isaiah 53? Tammy Leonard earlier, uh, between the second and third song, read from Isaiah 53. What about that passage? Weren't the Jews expecting that the Messiah might suffer? When we look historically, in those centuries before the time of Christ, we have no record of any Jews interpreting Isaiah 53 to point to the Messiah. I mean, let me read part of Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Now, from our vantage point, on this side of the cross, we can look back and, and see, yes, that was definitely pointing to Jesus. Back in the first century, and before the time of Christ, 
They were not interpreting this messianically. They weren't thinking, oh, the, the Messiah is going to have to suffer. He's going to have to die. They, just, they read Isaiah 53, but they didn't interpret that that applied to the Messiah. And so they missed out on this idea of a suffering Messiah who would pay the penalty for sin. And so to say that Jesus didn't meet the expectations that Jews had is a huge understatement. They were expecting someone. They were expecting a God-appointed king to deliver uh, Israel from captivity of the Romans. But Jesus did not deliver in the way that they were hoping or expecting. For this reason, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. So this idea of stumbling block literally comes from the Greek word scandalon. It was, it was a scandal in their minds to preach about a crucified Messiah. It made no sense at all. This was an enormous but back in the first century that kept people from following Christ because they just couldn't get over it in their minds of how could God do his miraculous work, his saving work through someone who's crucified. It just made no sense to them. And I think that us living here in the 21st century, I mean, we're accustomed to a cross. We're accustomed to the teaching about a crucified Messiah. I think it's hard for us to really fully get our minds around what that would be like to try to, to, try to change your mental um, categories in accepting the idea of a Messiah who needs to be crucified. Let me just give us an analogy, though. It's, uh, it might make us a little bit uncomfortable, but you know what? That's all right because it was kind of uncomfortable for them to come to grips with this as well. Imagine if someone came to you and worked really, really hard to try to convince you that David Koresh is God's Messiah and that he is God in human flesh and that he is the one who one day will rule the entire earth. Now, some of you are very familiar with David Koresh. Some of you, like me, remember this name from when we were younger uh, but don't know a whole lot about him. And some of you have no idea who I'm talking about. Well, David Koresh was the leader of a cult called the Branch Davidians, and they gained national prominence back in around 1993 when, when he was stockpiling guns, and he, I mean, he'd been abusing children for a long time, and, and he led all his followers to this compound, and there was this big standoff, and ended up where the FBI, after, after a number of federal officers were killed, the FBI went in in this big raid. David Koresh and a lot of his followers ended up dying. There was a fire. It was all kind of controversial. But, but basically, David Koresh died basically claiming pretty much to be a Messiah, a, 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 at least a prophet from God, the final, ultimate prophet. What would you think if someone came to you now and tried to convince you that David Koresh is God's Messiah? that he is God's spokesperson, that he is God in the flesh, that he is one day going to rule the nations. How would you respond? You'd probably just think that person's crazy. And it does sound crazy. But I think getting our minds around this, I do not believe that David Koresh was anyone special in these ways. So don't, don't try to convince me of that's something I don't believe after the service. I don't believe he was anyone special. But I think this helps us to get our minds around how people were thinking in the first century. The idea of a crucified Messiah just made no sense in their minds because of the categories they were thinking of. Now, when we look at Jesus, we understand Jesus' character and Jesus' teaching were far superior, completely different category than David Koresh's. And we can look at historical evidence and see there is strong, credible evidence for Jesus being the Son of God, for Jesus being God in the flesh, for Jesus being the Messiah 
for dying and rising again. We will look at that in the coming weeks. But we have to understand that this idea of a crucified Messiah was hard for these early uh, people back in the first century, Jews or Greeks, to get their minds around. But we also see that for Christians, the idea of a crucified Messiah is a precious truth. Because Christians honor Jesus as the Savior from God. Look with me to verses 24 and 25 of 1 Corinthians 1. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So Paul here is saying that the crucifixion of Christ, rather than being foolish or weak, is actually displaying God's power and God's wisdom. Let's look at the wisdom side first. We all have sinned. We all fall short of God's level of holiness and perfection. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So we all have a spiritual death penalty to pay. And God cannot just pardon us of that death penalty without perverting his justice and his holiness unless that death penalty was paid by someone else who was a worthy substitute. Jesus came to this world. This is a demonstration of God's wisdom. Jesus came to the world, lived an absolutely sinless life to qualify him as a substitute. Then he went to the cross to die the death penalty we deserve for our sins. He bore the, the, the curse for sins. He absorbed God's wrath for sins. And so that way, we, as we receive his gift of salvation, we can go free. We can have Christ's righteousness attributed to our accounts, and it can be, be done in a way that doesn't, doesn't distort God's holiness and God's justice, but instead, instead upholds justice and holiness because sin was punished. Sin was atoned for through Christ on the cross. And then we get the benefits of that by being set free from sin in both its power and especially its eternal consequences. So then we look at the cross and we can see the wisdom of God. How without the cross, there wasn't any way for us to receive true forgiveness of sins. The cross also displays God's power in multiple different ways, but I think most clearly in how Jesus died, he was buried, and three days later, he rose again. It's like saying the check cleared. The payment has been made in full through Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus defeated the grave through the power of God. And in doing so, defeated sin, evil, and death. And so as we come to the cross and we come to Jesus, we recognize, you know what, the idea of a crucified Savior, even though it may not make sense from the world's perspective, it's God's wisdom and God's power on display. So it begs the question for us of what type of Savior are we looking for? What type of Savior are you and I looking for? The Jews... They were looking for a savior who would fulfill their dreams of power and prosperity. The Greeks, they weren't really looking to God as a savior. They were looking more to human wisdom, thinking, you know what, we can do it ourselves. We have what it takes. So how about us? What type of savior are we looking for? Are we looking to God to make our lives more successful? Are we, are we imposing our dreams and our ideals onto God, saying, God, please, Bless these dreams. Do the things I want you to do. Are we treating God like a cosmic vending machine? Do we think, oh, just, you know, a little bit of spirituality would be good for me. Might make me a little bit more successful, a little bit healthier, a little bit happier. 
You see, the problem back in the first century and still for many people today is that when they, when they think about God, they come to God on their own terms rather than God's terms. And what God is asking is that we come to him and saying, God, I surrender to you. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, that they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. That's an act of surrender. The Savior comes to give us life. But in order to experience the life that he gives, we have to lay our lives down at his feet and follow where he leads us. And when the world sees us taking up our cross and following Christ, it probably won't make sense. It doesn't make sense to the world to worship a crucified Savior. It doesn't make sense to the world if we are laying down our lives and surrender to him, following where he leads rather than what the world thinks. It may not make sense. It may seem foolish because the idea of a crucified Savior still many times does feel foolish to people in this world. But when we see what Christ did for us and we see the life available through Christ, we will cherish the message of the cross. Now, the night before Jesus was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, he said, you know what? Do this in remembrance of me. And he was talking about the Lord's Supper. And every month here at Freedoms, we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a way to remember what Christ has done for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle Paul relates what Jesus did on the night he was betrayed. He said that Jesus took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul goes on to say that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, Jesus was resurrected. He still lives. He will return one day. But between now and then, we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a way to remind us of the centrality of the death of Christ. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, the cross is central to the good news that we celebrate in the gospel. And today, obviously, we are celebrating communion a bit differently than normal. We have big tables up here, and what we're going to do in a few minutes is be able to come forward and celebrate the Lord's Supper together as brothers and sisters in Christ gathering around the Lord's table. Back in the first century culture, uh, sharing table fellowship, sharing a meal together was a sign of, of intimacy, of friendship, of acceptance. And this is why it was such a scandal in that culture for Jesus, a religious leader, to be eating with, with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. People mocked him for that. They said, this shouldn't be, but instead it showed the heart of Jesus, that he welcomes sinners like us with open arms. And so we're going to prepare ourselves now to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a way to remember what Christ did for us on the cross. Now we have to recognize as we prepare ourselves that we all have sin in our lives. All of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. But we have the promise from 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so we are told to confess our sins, which is simply agreeing with God, God, I am sinful, I need your forgiveness. And so what we're going to do here in preparation for celebrating the Lord's Supper is, is called a corporate confession where we join our voices together in confessing our sins to God. It'll be up there on the screen in just a moment, but I want to ask you, 
not not just to go through the motions of this. I ask you to join in if you're sincere in your heart. If you know what, Jesus, I do want to follow you. And it's not saying I'm perfect, because none of us are perfect. It doesn't mean we'll follow God perfectly for the rest of our lives. But I ask you to join in if you are serious in your heart. If you know what, I do want to follow Jesus. I do want to surrender my life to him. I know I'll still be imperfect in that, but I want to follow him. I want to experience the life that he has for me. And so I invite you to stand. We're going to recite. Um, if you are prepared to do so, we're going to cite this corporate confession together. And then I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to sing a song together as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So, so if, if you in your heart feel like, you know what, yes, I do want to follow Jesus. I do want to surrender my life to him. I am looking for forgiveness of sins. I encourage you to join together as we recite this corporate confession. Almighty and most merciful Father, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have frequently followed our own selfish ambitions and the desires of our own hearts. Deepen within us our sorrow for the wrong we have done and the good we have left undone. Lord, you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Thank you that with you there is always forgiveness. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and may your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Amen. And hear these words from 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. John writes, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So I want to pray for us and we'll join together in singing Jesus, thank you, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus, we do thank you that you came to this earth, stepped off your heavenly throne. You died in our place so that we could live. Lord, I pray that each one of us will be at that point in our lives now or in the near future where we surrender to you. Where we say, not my will, but yours be done. Where we receive your gift of salvation through faith and repentance. Lord, that we will live our lives in gratitude. But we want to say thank you, Lord. And I pray that you will prepare our hearts to, to receive the Lord's Supper in a fresh way. With gratitude because of what you have done for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.